Are we in John or Genesis today? It's John, in fact. Yeah, there you go. John chapter 1, technically starting in verse 19, but we're going to do the whole chapter, uh, the rest of the chapter and chapter 1, which is really long. It goes 51 verses, and so we're not going to read all of it. I'll, I'll explain some of it to you and just read some parts of it. What's important here is what we're going to read about is Jesus establishing his kingdom, the first disciples called. You've got Jesus has come into the world, and you've got John. John the Baptist is out there proclaiming that Jesus is coming and witnessing to Jesus. And then John's disciples start to follow after Jesus. And then Jesus calls some other disciples, and you see one by one him establishing kingdom by calling together his disciples. But what we're going to do today, as promised, is read this in light of creation. Because there's a lot of parallels, and it's on purpose. What we talked about last week was in Genesis chapter 1, about God creating by days, how God created all things, and He created and then formed everything together uh, in six days and rested on the seventh day. So what we're going to be looking for is the similarities between how God creates everything and now how God establishes His kingdom when Christ comes into the world. You ready for that? Let's pray and let's read together. Father God, I pray that the reading of Your Word and the hearing of Your Word would change our lives. I pray that You would teach us so that we could know You better. And this I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start reading in verse 29 today. Um, John has come, and John the Baptist is proclaiming uh, the kingdom of God is coming. He's calling people to repentance, and he's baptizing everyone. And he's saying he's not the Messiah, but the Messiah is coming after him. And then one day, the Messiah comes walking by. Verse 29, the next day... John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. I have seen and I testify, this is the Son of God, John says. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus pass by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. And he first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, 
you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and he told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, hometown of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said about him, He truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord for us together today. A lot happens here. It's a long passage. John is proclaiming right before what we started reading. John is proclaiming the good news. God is, John is crying out, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. The Savior is coming. And they go out and question him, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees come out to him and say, okay, are you the prophet that Moses promised? Because Moses promised before he died that there would be another Moses, a new prophet who is going to come. And John says, no. And they say, well... Are you the Messiah, the Savior that's going to come? And John says, nope. And they say, well, are you Elijah? Because there's this promise that Elijah is going to return. And John says, no. Now, as we've discussed before, uh, Jesus will later, after John dies, say, yes, in fact, John was Elijah returned. And what we're to understand here is that John simply didn't understand the role that he was playing in God's purposes. He just obeyed. And so he played the role that God created him for. We don't have to have the whole big picture to know what God has called us to do in obedience and to obey him and fulfill the role that he's called us to. But all of this along the words of Scripture. And you, you heard in there, didn't you? After each section, this is happening day by day, like creation. Did you catch that one? John proclaims, there's the Son of God. The next day, Jesus walks by again, and John says, there's the Son of God. The next day, Jesus calls Philip, who calls Nathaniel, and so it goes. So how does God establish his kingdom? It turns out God establishes his kingdom on earth in a very similar way to how God created all things. And that is, first, it is done by his word. God created all things through His Word. And then through prophecy, God explains all things that are going to happen. See, the Pharisees are questioning John, and all of this that John is doing is in light of the Word of God. God spoke in creation, and then creation started obeying. God has spoken in the Old Testament about what He was going to do, so all creation was just watching to see it happen. It starts with prophecy about Jesus coming. It all starts always with the Word of God. But then, 
God establishes his kingdom by a witness, by John. Someone who comes forward and says, there he is. And you get it several times in this passage. John is the first witness. Then you get Andrew to his brother Peter. We found him. We found the Messiah. And then you get Philip to his friend Nathaniel. I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel jokes, surely not. From Nazareth? Uh, the idea is Nazareth is kind of a small hillbilly town. Uh, it had been like he had said, hey, I found the Messiah. He's from Arkansas. And we would have said, nope, next Messiah. Not that one. Surely not. But what's uh, Philip say to Nathaniel? Come and see. Just come and see, he calls him to do. You know, it, it dawns on me now that I, I make fun of Arkansas. I'm still thinking as a Texan. Uh, we need to make fun of a state that is adjacent to the glorious South Carolina. So it's like as if saying a Messiah came from Macon. Nope, you know, not happening. Uh, not Georgia. So how about that? Did that work? Probably. He establishes it by prophecy, by his word, but then he establishes his kingdom by witness. There is a word of someone saying, there is God. The kingdom of God is always established by a witness who says, this is the one. There he is. That's Jesus. You need someone to tell you and explain the word to you. Otherwise, how will you understand it? Uh, years ago, um, I, when I was in college, I had a friend who was moving to Washington, D.C. for work. And uh, because I had time on my hands being a college student, I said, yeah, I'll help you drive your U-Haul truck up there. And he had to go to work immediately with this new job that he had gotten. And I had nothing to do for a week. So I would just ride the metro uh, down to the National Mall and wander around by myself for the week, which I thought was just fantastic because, you know, I didn't have to slow down for anybody else. I could go to what museums I wanted to, when I wanted to, and just see everything on my own. And it was, it was glorious. Well, one of the days I go into the Hishhorn Museum, which is a part of the Smithsonian system, but it's the modern art museum. And I walk in and sure enough, there are small little plaques on the, shall we call them pieces of art? Uh, or there's small, if they're not art, they're at least on the installations. There's a little plaque, but that doesn't help you much in understanding what's going on here. And so I'm, I'm looking at some displays of things. You know, some, let's call him an artist, uh, takes 5,000 coat hangers and arranges them in a certain order. And you know what? It looks kind of neat, and I'm kind of into it, but I don't really know what's going on here. But what you really need in a place like that is someone who comes in as an enthusiast and can explain it to you. If you have a guide to say, oh, no, no, what you got to see is this next one. Do you see what they're trying to do with the, the artist is trying to show you is this and that. And then you can say, oh, okay, I understand. I may not like it, but I understand now at least. That's nice. Uh, I was the enthusiast one time. Uh, when Meredith was pregnant with our first child, I... Uh, God bless her. I took her to a motorcycle museum that I wanted to go to, and she stayed with me. The, the Barber Motorcycle Museum right outside of Birmingham, Alabama, is the largest motorcycle collection in the world. It's a six-story tall building, and so you take the elevator up to the top floor, and you wind your way down for six floors. She was a couple months pregnant uh, at the time, and God bless her, that trooper. She came with me, and I was walking around from bike to bike, going, oh, what you need to know about this one? This is a Sunbeam Square 4. There's four cylinders, but they're a square on two crankshafts. Isn't that crazy? It was crazy. It, it leaked oil constantly. It was a bad design, but it's cool to see, you know, and be able to talk to her about that sort of thing. You need someone to explain it. You need a witness to understand Scripture. And so there's the Word of God, and there's the witness, John, to say, 
You know there's a Messiah coming. There he is. You know there is a prophet coming. There he is. You know that there is a new Moses coming who is going to lead his people to a new freedom. There he is. It's Jesus the Christ every time. God establishes his kingdom by prophecy. God establishes his kingdom by witnesses. And God establishes his kingdom one by one. Do you see how this works? It starts off with just John, who is sent by God to witness. But then one by one, John's disciples leave John to go follow after Jesus and to hear from Jesus himself, which is exactly what was supposed to happen. And John says this to his disciples as much later on in the Gospels. He says, he must become greater. I must become less. This is my purpose. Less is more, is what John says. Well, one of those disciples is named Andrew. Everyone hears the gospel in their own language, and thousands come at one time to believe. Revivals happen, and it's glorious. But that's not the way the kingdom starts. It starts one by one. The next thing that happens is God establishes his kingdom by changing people. Illustrated in the changing of a name. From Simon to Peter, he calls him. You were Simon, now you're Peter. There's not a more illustrative illustrative way to talk about life change or a person changed than to have changed their name. That's kind of the way it is. Simon shows up and Jesus says, for now on, you're going to be a whole new person. Let's give you a new name. You're so different than who you used to be. Now you're going to be Peter. And this is how God establishes his kingdom. By transforming lives, changing them wholly and completely from one person to another. In another word, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Finally, he establishes his kingdom by miraculous power. And you see this in Nathaniel's life. Nathaniel comes forward and comes to Jesus. And first Jesus tells him, ah, you know, look, an Israelite without deceit. And Nathaniel is certain that Jesus is talking about him. How'd you know? <laughs> of course I'm without deceit. Uh, but Jesus has a moment of prophetic power here where he says, Nathaniel, I saw you back before you were just sitting under that fig tree and before Philip comes and gets you, and I, and I saw all of that. And he explains to him what he was doing. It's miraculous what happens here. And Nathaniel recognizes it. Though it's a very small miracle, Nathaniel recognizes this is prophetic power. This is the power of God. And so Nathaniel does exactly what he should do and say, you must be then the Messiah because you come in prophetic power. And Jesus said to Nathaniel, is that all it takes for you? Well, good, but... You're going to see things far greater than this. Come and follow me. And Nathaniel does. And you know what happens? Nathaniel sees things far greater than that. Nathaniel sees miracle after miracle. Nathaniel sees a man who was born blind open his eyes and see. Nathaniel sees a man born uh, without his legs working get up and walk around. And Nathaniel sees the dead rise from their graves. He sees Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, killed, but risen and alive forevermore. Yeah, Nathaniel sees things far greater. God establishes his kingdom through a 
but he also establishes his kingdom by his miraculous power every time. So, these for how he establishes his kingdom, let's talk about the applications of these. How are we going to participate in the establishment of God's kingdom? If this is how he establishes it, then what are we going to do? We who are members of the kingdom of God, we have been saved by the grace of God and called to follow after him. What are we going to do? What does it mean for us? And how are we going to apply this in our life that Jesus establishes his kingdom just so, one by one, meticulously and purposefully, day by day, just like creation? If this is the way this God works and we are his now, what are we going to do? Well, first of all, since Jesus establishes his kingdom by prophecy, that is, by the word of God, we must share the word of God. We must recognize that the word of God is not like other words. It's more powerful than other words. We have to understand when we go to read scripture, it's not like going to read another book because it's not just some other book. It is the word of God itself. And this is how God establishes his kingdom. After all, Paul will say to the Roman church that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Or as God will say through the prophet Isaiah, my word will go out and it will exactly what I send it out to accomplish. The word of God is powerful. And so if we are to exist as who are members of his kingdom established, then we will have to recognize that in other people by prophecy, which means the word of God, and we will hear the word of God very simply for you and easily. Go and read scripture and tell somebody about what you read. A text message, a Facebook message, a card that you write, a, hey, take a look at this. I just read this this morning. Isn't that fancy? How neat is that? We often joke at our Wednesday night Bible study that the way we t discuss Scripture is I'll read it and say, what'd you find interesting? So there's no wrong answers because no one's going to say to you, no, that wasn't interesting. I'm sorry. You're wrong about Scripture. And so it is. The Word's what's powerful, not our understanding of it, but to simply go to somebody and say, I read this this morning. How interesting is that? How neat is that? And allow the Word to do its work is what it does. We must share the word of God. Second, the kingdom of God comes by witness. So what must we do? Be witnesses. There's three different ways to do it here. John, who has this long theological one, the Holy Spirit is on him. I saw it come down. I was told that the one who had the Holy Spirit come down on them is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. That's him. That's the one. That is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John witnesses rightly. But you know, so does Andrew. And all Andrew says to Simon is, we found the Messiah. In a word, Andrew says, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah. He says to his brother, Simon, Simon, you want to know who the uh, Messiah's name is? You want to know who the Christ is? It's Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord is the very simple way that he does it. And you know what? Even Philip to Nathaniel, because what's Philip say to Nathaniel? Just come and see. Just come and hear him. Just come together for it is what Philip says to Nathaniel. Nathaniel scoffs and Philip says, just come on. And so... Nathaniel and Philip likewise hear the gospel and become a part of the kingdom. 
We must be witnesses. We have to be the ones who say, there he is. Jesus is Lord. We have to be the ones who say, okay, listen, I don't know what I'm supposed to say right now, but I have found out that Jesus is Lord. You come to and see, minimally, like Philip. But then, like Andrew to Simon, to proclaim to somebody else, Jesus is Lord. I know, and I found this out. Hey, I too was a dead man walking. I also had no joy or hope in life or purpose, but I found all of it in Jesus Christ. I'm a member, a citizen of God's kingdom now, and you can be too. Jesus is Lord is the answer to all of it. We can give an even longer theological answer like John and explain the gospel about how though God created the world and all have sinned, yet God himself so desired to see our salvation that he himself came down and took on flesh, lived perfectly, but died so that all the sin we've ever done would be poured out on him and not on us. And he didn't stay dead, but he rose again and he accepts every last person who comes to him. Won't you go to Christ today? Take your pick on how you witness, but we must witness that Jesus Christ is Lord. How do we participate in the establishment of the kingdom? By prophecy, the word, by witness. How do we participate? One by one. One by one. Everybody wants to be the person who gets to share the gospel with thousands of people. When Billy Graham retired, everybody wanted to be the next Billy Graham. All kinds of guys I knew who were like, okay, the next Billy Graham. But that's not how it begins. The prophets have a phrase, and that is, do not despise the day of small things, is the word through the prophets. Do not despise the small things. In fact, that's the way it's supposed to start, is one by one. It is supposed to start this way. This isn't a mistake. This is intentional. Jesus comes into the world to proclaim the gospel, the good news that he, God himself, has come into the world. And who does he go to tell? Some guy named Philip. But it's that one guy, Philip. But Philip goes and tells Nathaniel. James, or Andrew, goes and tells Peter, his brother. This is how it begins. God is calling you to be a part of his kingdom and the spread of his kingdom, but don't be discouraged if it starts small. To be a part of the establishment of his kingdom is just to get a person, a friend, a neighbor together for breakfast and say, come and sit down with me and let's read scripture together. Let's just see together. Come and see is you saying, come and let's just read this gospel of John together. The kingdom of God begins this way, calling 20 people and two showing up, but not being discouraged because two showed up. Don't despise the small starts. Don't despise the day of small things. This is the way God created it to be. You'll recall, it seems like ages ago to me, but it was just back at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, January, February, March, we were going through the prophet Daniel. You guys remember Daniel? It wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a long, long time ago. And Daniel had a lot of dreams, but one of them was about this tree that started off awfully small, this stump, this bush but it grew to fill the entire earth. It grew and it grew and it grew. And at first it looks like one of those sprawling oak trees you can see in a, a Hopeland Gardens, but then it kept growing to be the sprawling oak tree that consumed the whole earth. 
And even Daniel knows that this is what the kingdom of God is like and how he will establish his kingdom, a small thing that will grow to consume the entire earth. Revivals happen, and it's a delight to see them happen. But don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise that this starts one by one and builds up into something greater that fills everything. Uh, I told the uh, the Wednesday night Bible study folks about uh, my friend Steve Marshall. He's the missionary in France who I wanted to go see this summer. I'd love for our church to be a partnership with him. I was going to go this summer and then take a group from the church to visit and see the churches that he started next summer and see how we could partner. I couldn't go this summer. I still hope we can take a group next summer, but of course, everything is just a wait and see right now. Uh, but I love how 15 years now he's been over there in France, and it started with a church that was already there about 60 people. And now over the years, there's four churches. And it's like 450 people in a very lost place. And he can't just call in other French-speaking pastors because they don't exist. He has to raise them up. And so he starts off with high schoolers, college students who come to Christ, and slowly works with them, teaching them scripture. And over the years, as they graduate from college and then go on to seminary, uh, after they're called, they can go and be pastors. He's got two other locations where he could start churches, two other suburbs where there is not a church. But he's just waiting to raise up these pastors one by one. And Steve, I talked to him two weeks ago, and he's, here's his COVID plan. While France is locked down, still they go to school. The public schools are open because, you know, as far as enculturation, the public schools are awfully important uh, in European society in each country. And that's how you become French is by having to go through the French schools. It's compulsory. And so they have to be opened again. But the students are off for lunch, and they're supposed to go home for their lunches. Well, one of these four churches actually has a building, and it's close to one of the schools where his two teenage sons go. And so what he decided is he could just have them over for lunch at the church, and they could play some games together and have a good time, and he could share the gospel with them and pray for them and send them back to school right in the middle of the school day. He said, okay, so I tried this for the first time. I just sent three text messages, and seven kids showed up. Because I think it's next week I could send another three text messages. How many would show up? Just seven kids. But Steve was incredibly excited about this because he knows how the kingdom of God starts. It's a small thing, but don't despise a small thing. Because seven turns into 14. Because Andrew goes and tells Peter. Because Philip goes and tells Nathaniel. And so the kingdom of God spreads one by one. How do we participate in the establishment of the kingdom of God? He establishes it by changing people. This new name that Peter gets. He was Simon, now he's going to be Peter. He establishes it by changing people completely. So drastically, it's like you might as well change your own name. You won't recognize me on the street anymore. You know, we recognize in our lives. What do you think? Do people change? It seems that people don't change a lot. These are people kind of keep going and doing whatever awful thing that they're doing. You know, people who have been living terrible lives for decades now, and they're still doing it, and it's still terrible, and there's very little hope of them changing. And you know what? You can come to the conclusion that people don't change. But I tell you, I have seen people change their lives. I have had my life changed so completely, you might as well have changed my name. It is the miraculous power of God that does this. Let's go ahead and say, yeah, people don't change, but God changes people. And it can happen, and it can happen through the work of God. And this is how he establishes his kingdom. And if that's how he establishes his kingdom, then we're going to have to recognize what we're 
aiming for is the impossible. So let us aim for the impossible. Another way of saying that is let us aim for the miraculous. Let us work in such a way that we know that we need God's miraculous power in order to actually bring about change. And at the end of all of our efforts of working, let us recognize that it was God who did the real work and who gets the credit and glory for it. He establishes his kingdom by his miraculous power. One disciple goes out. Another disciple goes out. They go and tell their friends. They go and tell their brothers, but it's really God doing the work. We do everything we can and recognize it's the miraculous work of God, but we don't stop doing what we're called and made to do. We must tell people God uses witnesses to change people's life. But it is always the miraculous work of God. In church history, uh, the Second Great Awakening is a time period we call in America where a bunch of revivals happened, you guessed it, after the First Great Awakening. And the first one, uh, everyone was a little dubious of exuberance, they would call it. You don't want to get too excited. You need to calm down. And in the First Great Awakening, some pastors got a little out of hand and were saying that they could discern whether or not a person was actually saved and could tell you whether or not you saved. And, and there were some book burnings, and it got a little out of hand, and some of them had to repent afterwards. In the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney, the same issues going on, The what, what role does emotional play, emotionalism play? But Finney called it means. He said, what role do the means play? The things that we do to see people saved. Finney saw lots and lots of people saved. And Finney came up with uh, first a pamphlet and then a book and then a lecture series as he was a college president later in his life of how you ought to hold a revival. He was the first person who gave you the system. Do these things. Here's the revival checklist that you're supposed to do to see people saved. And Finney said, it's not a miraculous work, these revivals, but it is. But first, there are actually things you ought to do. And so he created some methods, we'll call them. He called them means, we'll call them methods. They were a little controversial in his day. Uh, one included, the most popular one was the anxious bench. That is, you'd come to revival and you'd bring your lost family members, that lost brother of yours, and you'd uh, bring them down to sit right on the front row. <laughs> that was the anxious bench. And the front rows were reserved for some lost sinner. And uh, you bring them right down front. And he would preach to the people who were right there in the front row on the anxious bench. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, oh, a lot of them got up and came forward for salvation. Whether or not this is a good idea remains to be seen. But he's right do need to do everything we can. We don't sit back and not witness saying, oh, God will bring him about salvation. No. We, Talatha, hold revivals. We knock on doors. We send out mailers. We invite our friends. We have VBSs. We have special bring a friend Sundays. We set up Sunday school classes. We do drive through trunk or treat. We do these things because we want to see people saved and we're committed to doing everything we can. And we must do everything we can because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. But how will they hear if someone does not tell them? It is the miraculous work of God at the end of the day that brings about salvation. How did you become saved? Perhaps your parents, if you're, God bless you, your parents brought you to church so that you could hear. But it might not have been your parents. It might have been a friend. It might have been a neighbor. 
might have been late in life. It might be lately that you have come for the first time, living for a few years, not knowing God, and now here you are and able to hear it every week. But when you hear and start to believe, you realize it's not just that person who brought you, it's God working in your life. For each and every one of us, it's the miraculous, powerful work of God that we come to believe and trust him either way. And even so, still I call you today, repent and believe, turn away from your sins and do what you can in pursuit of Christ. And when you find him, you will find he was the one pursuing you, even as you pursued him. Which brings us to our last thing to discuss. So this is how we can establish the kingdom of God, given how he establishes the kingdom of God. But if you're not a part of it, how do you go about getting into it? Let's say, let me talk to you today who aren't sure that you are Christ's. Let me talk to you today who don't know if you believe. How do you go about being established in his kingdom? How do you go from uncertainty to certainty? How do you go from an outsider to an insider? From an old creation to a whole new creation? How do you see the change in life that's so drastic you might as well change your name? God will establish his kingdom in you today, just like this. First, by his word prophecy. And that is, all who would come to him must be born again. will be established in his kingdom today by a witness. And that's all the rest of us here today saying to you, Jesus is Lord. I've found him. Come and see. I found God himself. Hope in my life. Come near. How will the kingdom of God be established in you today? One by one, as you realize that while Christ died for the sins of the world, he didn't just die for the sins of the whole world, but he also died for your sins. For God so loved the world, but God has also loved you. You. God will come to you and is coming to you just like he goes to Philip, the God who created and goes and finds this one guy and says, follow me. But that's true of every last person who's ever lived. God will save you today because he is in your life and desires for you to be saved. And finally, how will he establish his kingdom in you? It's a miraculous work. But when you hear God speaking into your life today, don't harden your heart. Don't, don't, when you start, when you recognize, when you start to believe today that this God is as good as he says he is, that he is actually with us and near us, that Christ really rose from the grave, and that all who are in him, Jesus, forgive me. Let me follow you. I'll turn away from my sin. And I'll follow you every day for the rest of my life. Jesus is Lord.